Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. A renowned scholar, professor, and uh, researcher. In addition to which, today, he's not going to talk to us about any of those fabulous things that he does on a daily basis. He's going to talk to us today about an area that uh, he is uh, expertise, has his expertise in. Uh, and it's an area that uh, is so important because we have so many people who live to be older than 60. And uh, their health becomes critical because that they're soon to become the largest part of the United States population. But the area of gerontology and his specialty is, is a geriatrician is something that uh, a few specialists actually are available. So we have a unique opportunity to hear from him today in terms of problems that we as those who are over 60 experience, but but don't, but really have the opportunity to go to a doctor with that expertise. So without further ado, my good friend and colleague and uh, a special uh, person because he spoke to us. This is at least his third time he's spoken to us. And he's uh, accepted some of my referrals because, and they have just loved the fact that he takes care of them at this elderly age. So without further ado, Dr. Thomas Obisazan. Good morning. Good morning, seniors. Uh, if I can use, I, I hope it's okay to use that term. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm slowly walking towards uh, becoming a member of the club also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me and thank you, Dr. Kalender, for inviting me today. Uh, anytime I have the privilege and the opportunity to speak with seniors, it's always a very joyous moment for me. Uh, we often say that we often say that uh, seniors are the jewels of our household, and uh, we don't want anything to take uh, the jewels of our households from us. And because of that, we have to do everything humanly possible uh, to make sure that we maintain our psychological and functional well-being uh, to, until the end of life. The ultimate goal of uh, geriatric medicine uh, overall is to compress morbidity and expand the span of healthy living. Uh, what do I mean by this? That is, we want to compress, minimize the amount of time that an individual uh, spent on the bed, unable to care for himself or herself before the end of life. We want to minimize that amount of time to the extent possible so that we expand the span of time when an individual is able to go about their own business caring for themselves and their love and loved ones. Uh, perhaps I should um, also uh, begin my comments with uh, two very short stories. Um, while I was a fellow, at GW, because the question that Dr. Kalender asked me to address today uh, is why a geriatrician? 
Uh, while I was a fellow at uh, GW, a geriatric fellow, I had the privilege of uh, moonlighting at a local hospital. And I walked in there one morning, um, obviously after a routine um, assignment in, the in my primary hospital. And I nearly, barely put down my bags and I got a call from the nursing staff and asking me to renew a restraint order that was ordered uh, by somebody, by the person who walked before I got there on that particular day. And as a geriatric fellow, I was already quite sensitive to the idea of uh, not using restraint in the elderly. So I basically told them that I wasn't going to renew that restraint order. Uh, what I did not tell them was that I was coming to the floor to evaluate uh, the patient. So as, as soon as I put down my bag, I then walked to the floor. And as I was walking to the patient room, I saw two policemen coming out of the room. Uh, one policeman coming out of the room and another policeman trying to hold the patient down and telling him, I told you what, I, what I'm going to do to you if you don't cooperate. Uh, obviously, that kind of scenario may no longer play out to the extent that it did at the time. But as a geriatric fellow, I was perturbed and astounded that that type of thing was still going on. So I asked the policeman to excuse me and leave the room. Uh, so he left the room. I tried to talk to the senior. I tried to calm him down. Fortunately, actually calmed down. And by the time I finished the evaluation, to cut a long story short, it turned out that uh, the gentleman had a massive pulmonary embolism and hypoxic and was in hypoxic encephalopathy. So I tell that story to, to let you know the value of a geriatrician. Not to say that an average clinician does not know how to make the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, but the sensitivity to the issue of confusion and restraint in the elderly uh, kind of sets uh, my view of the patient apart from that of um, the individuals who had seen the patient much earlier. Um, another case uh, that I will briefly uh, allude to was that of an older lady uh, who was one of my first few patients when I joined the faculty uh, back, um, I believe, 1994. Um, this individual has been coming to the hospital with repeated um, dehydration and diarrhea. And I was asked to see her on a consult. And then when I evaluated her medication, it turned out that she was taking a particular medication which anyone would not have suspected that it might have been responsible uh, for the predicament she had. Uh, it was actually an eye drop. Uh, most people intuitively would think an eye drop will never be absorbed to the extent that it will cause that kind of problem. She was going through the revolving door because of repeated hospitalization uh, for uh, bouts of diarrhea and electrolyte imbalance and dehydration. 
It turned out that the cause of her diarrhea, uh, based on the investigation that we did at the time, was diamonds, uh, an optimic uh, solution that, that is no longer used as often as it used to in those days. Uh, we stopped the diamonds and boom, uh, the repeated hospitalization and electrolyte imbalance and diarrhea went away. Uh, this is not to say that uh, a geriatrician necessarily know more medicine than an average clinician. It's just the sensitivity to, uh, to some of the dynamics of healthcare issues in older adults that really sets uh, a geriatrician aside uh, from that of an average uh, clinician. Uh, so let me uh, begin. I thought I was going to um, uh, use three slides um, because this is not so much of a seminar discussion. Um, it's, this is more of a discussion. I kind of have a few talking points uh, so that um, with the hope that uh, you'll be able to uh, kind of follow uh, my train of thought. So these are the things that I wanted to um, kind of uh, share with you to kind of go over um, so that you can follow um, my train of thought as I go through some of the excellent uh, issues. Uh, don't worry, I don't have uh, plenty of slides. I only have about eight slides uh, just to share with you. We love that first slide, Graceful <laughs> Aging. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so um, thank you, Dr. Callender. So the first issue is, is really the general medical assessment, which I'm not going to dwell too much upon because you're already getting that done. Uh, with your primary care physician, uh, but it suffices to say uh, that once you walk your way into the examination area, if you are seeing a geriatrician, uh, remember that your assessment already started. Because as a geriatrician, um, I'm trying to see uh, how you're getting up from the seat. I'm trying to see whether you are struggling to get up from the seat. I'm trying to see whether you're using the arms of the chair to get up from your seat. I'm watching your gait as you walk into the examination room. I'm trying to see whether you have a scissors gait, whether you are limping on one side, whether your arms is swinging the way it's supposed to swing, whether your gait speed is appropriate, uh, whether you are leaning to one side. All those things, all those assessments is already going on even before uh, a geriatrician uh, his or her hands on you. Um, the other general medical assessment that I do that to here has to do uh, with your um, other general medical issues, hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, and so on and so forth. But let me uh, come back to the issue that are peculiar to older adults in general, uh, starting with frailty. Uh, frailty is a term that uh, even the best of us are still struggling to be very, very clearly articulate. 
Uh, it seems to be the common pathway by which things happen uh, towards the end of life. Uh, some people describe it as vulnerability to stressors. Others describe it as loss of complex homeostatic mechanism or homeostatic dysregulation. What does this mean? It means the ability of the body to respond to insults uh, is compromised. Uh, typically, it's eroded with uh, weight loss, uh, fatigue, um, weakness, and uh, inability to perform uh, routine activities of daily living. Uh, frailty is something that um, uh, the clinician, uh, mostly geriatricians, so we focus on to make sure that it's properly assessed and that they discern the underlying etiology so that they can do whatever is necessary uh, to reverse whatever is reversible. I alluded to the issue of force um, um, with respect to frailty earlier. Uh, force is a major, major uh, problem in older adults because someone who was marginally functional uh, uh, falls and breaks his or her hip, and that person may never be able to walk again. Uh, because as you get older, it becomes quite challenging uh, once we are put on bed rest for any number of days uh, to regain our physical function. Uh, because at that point, uh, minimal insults is required to really uh, render the body and the physiology incapable of returning to baseline. So we must do everything humanly possible to avoid force, and therefore any uh, thing that we enhance gait and balance uh, is always of uh, interest to geriatrician. Um, even though we really have not been able to practice geriatric medicine in the proper way for those who are veterans or who go to the VA, uh, the VA may be able to send somebody to your home to actually do a home assessment uh, to assess uh, for risk of falls. Uh, what are we looking for when we go into the home? Uh, we are looking for any evidence of cluttered furniture, uh, we're looking for any evidence of wires, uh, telephone wires or electrical wires. Uh, we're looking for throw carpets. Uh, we're looking at the windows to make sure there is enough illumination coming into the house. Uh, we're also doing visual, visual assessment just to make sure that um, there is no cataract that is compromising or glaucoma that is compromising your visual acuity. Obviously, we're also looking for gait and balance. We are looking to see whether you have to climb stairs in order to get into your bathroom, I mean, into your bedroom. Uh, we're looking to see whether you have grab bars in the, in the walls of your bathroom, whether you have uh, no skid mat, whether you have raised toilet seats, uh, whether you have um, a seat in the bathtub uh, to prevent slipping and falling and hitting one's head. Uh, which can be quite catastrophic. So those are some of the things we're looking for in the environment that I think you should look for in your environment uh, to make sure that uh, because these things are avoidable and therefore they should be prevented at all costs. Um, the next issue that I will uh, dwell on a little bit is the issue of polypharmacy. 
uh, I typically tell my residents um, who are rotating through geriatrics that um, if there is nothing, absolutely nothing else they feel they can do with respect to awareness of an older patient that they see with multitudes of medical problems, uh, which often perplex them, uh, just look through the uh, list of the medications. I will tell you a very uh, brief story here. Um, earlier on, I was asked to see a, a patient on consult um, who was admitted to the hospital because of acute confusional state and obtundation. Uh, this patient had general anasaka and was completely out of it. Um, I looked through the medications uh, because I couldn't discern what else might be going on. And I saw a medication that I was not familiar with and I just decided I was going to look it up in the PDR. Going are the old days when everybody uh, uh, uses the PDR. It turned out that this patient was um, kind of a textbook example of a medication, a side effect that was later withdrawn from the market called triglitazone. Uh, the liver had failed. Uh, she was very, very confused. I asked the doctor if I could discontinue the medication. She said no. And I just uh, respectfully told her that uh, we have to help her find another doctor uh, to take care of her mom if she wouldn't let me stop the medication. Uh, finally, she agreed uh, for me to stop the medication. We stopped the medication, and within a week, all the general anasaka was gone. The liver had recovered. Uh, she became lucid. Within two weeks of that event, even though I personally have not reported that event to the FDA, that medication was withdrawn from the market. Um, First of all, I didn't even know that that medication had that type of side effects before I saw the patient. All I had was my sensitivity to the issue of polypharmacy and medication adverse events in the other adult that motivated me to go and look up the side effects of that medication, which was relatively new in the market at the time. Why is polypharmacy such a big issue in older adults? It is a very major issue in other adults from the standpoint of changes in physiology, uh, from body fat distribution to body water, uh, to absorption, uh, to elimination, to metabolism. Everything about medication is different in other adults. Uh, your doctor could be giving you maybe 10 milligrams of a particular medication not really knowing that that medication is translating into 50 milligram because of changes uh, in your body composition. Uh, some drugs are widely distributed in fatty tissue, while others are widely distributed in water. Uh, both of these two things are, are kind of go in opposite direction as we age uh, because of a mobilization of fat from the periphery to the central region and contraction of the uh, vascular volume of body water as we get older. Also, albumin is the protein that is responsible for moving medications from one point to the other. 
And medications that are banned to albumin are often not biologically active. Because albumin is lower, levels of albumin is lower in older adults, they tend to have um, a more a higher percent of free uh, fraction of the medication that is biological active, biologically active, which makes medications that effects to be uh, a lot more problematic in older adults. Uh, the livers also are not as efficient and the kidney are not as efficient with respect to getting rid of the metabolites of the medication. Similarly, the blood-brain barrier is not as uh, efficient as that of a young person, which makes it more likely that some of these medications that are centrally acting will be able to cross the blood-brain barrier and therefore be able to have unwanted uh, side effects. Uh, let me spend another few minutes talking about memory disorder. Um, this is an area of my scientific endeavor, and this is an area where we've made uh, quite significant progress over the last uh, 15, 20 years. Even though we yet do not have a magic bullet for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common type of dementia, we have made uh, quite remarkable progress. Uh, but it's critically important that uh, the doctor is able to discern uh, the differences uh, in memory problems, uh, confusion uh, emanating from memory disorder as against someone who has acute delirium. Uh, which is a medical emergency. Uh, sometimes it can be very perplexing to clinicians, but for a geriatrician, it's uh, kind of quite straightforward. Um, those individuals with memory disorder would have, we have a history of uh, frequent confusion uh, that is not rapidly progressing over time. Uh, whereas uh, someone with acute delirium, uh, we have fluctuations in the levels of consciousness, uh, more than likely the event will be progressive uh, over days or hours or perhaps minutes. Uh, with respect to memory disorder, um, as I noted, Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of memory disorder, but there are other clinical uh, entities that can potentially cause memory loss. Um, of note is uh, Lewy body dementia. Uh, we have frontotemporal dementia, which is typically associated uh, with wasting of the frontal part of the brain, uh, whereby uh, executive function becomes diminished much earlier in the process. You can also have what we call uh, a uh, normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is a fluid buildup in the brain uh, that can be accompanied by difficulty in walking as well as uh, having bladder problems. Uh, but with respect to Alzheimer's dementia, it's slowly but surely progressive over time. So if you have somebody who is beginning to forget names, um, getting lost in familiar areas, becoming easily disoriented, uh, not remembering appointments, uh, not remembering me medical appointments, uh, not taking medications. Um, 
not remembering to take their medications as prescribed, um, that's problematic and that person should have uh, immediate evaluation. It should not be considered as um, a part of aging. But I also know that most of us, we forget things here and there, uh, forgetting your keys, misplacing your keys, and so on and so forth, or forgetting a list of grocery items. What makes, uh, what differentiates benign forgetfulness from significant memory loss? Uh, there is what we call, uh, um, if your memory loss is associated with observations from other members of the family who are saying, well, I think your memory is not as good as it used to be, then you should be concerned. Uh, we call that objective memory complaint. Um, as against you just thinking, well, I don't remember things as often as I used to. But the key word there is as often as I used to. Um, I remember this story uh, while I was a fellow also attending the, uh, the Gerontological Society of America meeting a while back. Many of you will remember Andy Rooney. Uh, Andy Rooney was the keynote speaker at the scientific conference and talking about memory loss. He said one day his father called him and said, Andy, I don't think I, I, I think my memory is not as good as it used to be. And Andy said he responded to his dad that dad, your memory has never been good as far as I know. So you always have to know the reference point for every individual. But I will still say Andy's dad's complaint was legitimate because his words were as used, I don't remember as used as I used to. So if you are benchmarking an individual against their baseline and things are not as, uh, as they used to be, then that should prompt an evaluation. The other most important thing is that memory loss that is associated with uh, uh, an onset of dementia tends to get progressively worse over time. Whereas benign forgetfulness, you're just forgetting a little uh, things here and there, it doesn't get worse over time. And therefore uh, that could be considered benign forgetfulness. But if you're ever in doubt, the best way is to really get checked by your physician. Again, things like uh, forgetting, misplacing your keys, uh, forgetting the list of grocery items, you driving on the road, you get to a stop sign, uh, you suddenly forget where to turn, or you get to the middle of the road, you don't know where to go, and uh, you misplacing things in your house. Uh, those are concerns that should prompt you to seek um, an assessment, or you getting disoriented in familiar places. Uh, that should prompt assessment. Uh, fortunately, um, for many decades, for over 100 years since we've um, uh, known about the disease called Alzheimer's, we really didn't have any meaningful way to make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, um, uh, the definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's in a living person. Most people think when we say someone had Alzheimer's in those days that we know for sure that the person had Alzheimer's. It's more of an exclusion, exclusionary diagnosis. 
that is, we couldn't identify any other ways, any other reasons for the memory loss. Uh, not until recently, uh, as the scientific pro progress enabled us to be able to make a definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease uh, in a living person. No longer do we have to wait until somebody dies and we take a brain biopsy uh, to determine that somebody has Alzheimer's disease. Now with the use of, uh, with the advent of a PET scan imaging of the brain, we can actually identify the protein that causes Alzheimer's disease in the brain of a living person. Fortunately, we are actually able to discern the presence of this protein about 20 years before memory loss actually begins, which means that this protein begins to accumulate uh, much, much earlier than we thought in the brain and therefore presents opportunity for us to begin to do things to ameliorate the likelihood or the progression to dementia. Uh, if you are listening to the news, you might have heard about a new medication called lecanemab that is actually able to remove the amyloid abnormal protein from the brain and therefore mitigate uh, progression uh, to memory loss. Uh, let me say a few words about depression and anxiety. Um, the really most important thing I want to say here is that we should make every attempt, uh, every effort possible to destigmatize depression and anxiety, especially in our population. Uh, depression is not different from diabetes, hypertension, so is anxiety. Uh, because of uh, chemical imbalance in the brain. Why is depression so problematic and most appropriate that we identify and treat? Because once somebody is depressed, they no longer want to go out. They don't want to get together with family and friends. Uh, nutrition suffers. They don't want to take their medications. And before you know it, uh, someone who is marginally functional can become bedridden in just a matter of months, uh, just because of a depression. So it's not just the depression itself, but the consequences of being depressed can be quite immense. It can also uh, cause an apparent uh, memory loss because those individuals are having challenges with uh, registering information. And as a result of that, you cannot recall information that you are not registering because of loss of attention. Uh, so depression is a very, very major problem in older adults and it can be the beginning of the end. And because it's easily treatable, we must uh, make sure we identify and treat depression as soon as possible. Obviously there are not enough psychiatrists to see every case of, uh, of depression and therefore most geriatricians are quite skilled and uh, experienced at uh, identifying and treating depression and anxiety as, uh, as we age. Um, I know you already, uh, I think I recall that uh, Dr. the urologist of Kokoma might have spoken with you with respect to uh, urological issues. I'm not going to spend too much time on bladder control, but also to note that 
sometimes bladder control can be the beginning of the end because what happens is an individual then begin to avoid social gatherings because of loss of bladder control. They don't, they tend not to want to go out. And if they are not going out and they are avoiding social gatherings, getting together with friends and families or going to church or going to the grocery store, then what's going to happen is that they're going to begin to lose muscle mass. Their nutrition is going to suffer and their memory decline is going to set in. So something as simple as bladder control can very quickly culminate into a much bigger problem that will be accompanied by depression, anxiety, memory loss. There is already uh, a, um, a characteristics we call sarcopenia in older adults, that is loss of muscle mass. No matter how, no matter how much we try, we are going to lose muscle mass as we get older. If an individual is having uh, challenges with their bladder and because of that, they're not going out, the loss of muscle mass is going to become accelerated. And then very quickly, uh, they may not be able to walk again. Uh, dental care is another area of significant uh, of importance. Uh, why? Because of inflammation. Uh, inflammation is the uh, underlying factor in many uh, disease predicaments, uh, from diabetes to hypertension to memory loss to cancer. And therefore, uh, dental care is uh, critically important to reduce the level of inflammation uh, that's getting to the brain and therefore be able to mitigate a lot of complications uh, from inflammation. Similarly, is bowel movement. Um, I'm sure this sounds to you like it's something that um, is not of uh, great importance, but bowel movement is uh, regular. Bowel movement is critically important for the same reason. We are now even beginning to learn that gut microbiome may actually impact uh, the process of cognitive aging, that is, contribute in some ways to memory decline uh, that occurs with advancing age. And therefore, anything you can do to reduce inflammation, uh, dental care, as well as uh, proper bowel regimen and bowel movement uh, can be very, very beneficial. Uh, let me talk a little bit about driving uh, because um, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, it's very hard for a geriatrician to tell a senior not to drive. But by the time a geriatrician tells you not to drive, uh, it's perhaps appropriate for you not to drive. We are hesitant to give that advice because we recognize the fact that once somebody stops driving, then their social network uh, decreases very remarkably. And at the same time, uh, their physical function begins to decline. Uh, but why is driving such a critical issue? Driving requires an integration of visual acuity, your ability to see, your ability to process the information, which means you have to be able to see properly. You have to be able, you have to have the cognitive capacity to process the information and then be able to send signals to your lower extremities and to your hand to either accelerate, press the brake, and steer the car in a particular direction. Uh, 
all those complex integration must happen in a rather quick uh, sequential manner in order for you to be a safe driver, driver on the road. So if you have having memory issues, uh, perhaps driving uh, become, may become a concern. If, you, if someone has had a stroke or someone has very bad arthritis and unable to move or make the required adjustment when driving on the road, that may be problematic, driving may be problematic. Uh, if you have glaucoma or cataract or macular degeneration, anything that will prevent you from being able to see or hear, you also need your proper hearing because if someone is honing, you have to be able to hear that person and be able to process the information so that you can react appropriately. So when a geriatrician is evaluating whether or not you should be driving, these are the things that the geriatrician is uh, taking into consideration. But most often the cognitive component is one that is under-recognized. Obviously, the geriatrician doesn't have the privilege of taking away anybody's driving license, uh, but uh, typically we can advise family members and uh, the patient to stop driving. And also, um, if there is no cooperation, then we can refer the patient to the motor vehicle administration for assessment. The one other thing I want to dwell on very quickly is elderly abuse. Um, it's much more common than um, we all recognize. And we often think about elderly abuse in the context of physical abuse. Uh, elderly abuse is not just limited to um, physical abuse. It can be psychological abuse and neglect. Uh, if you have concern uh, whether or not you are being properly treated, I think you should let your doctor know, can make the proper assessment and then decide uh, whether or not other protective services, the involvement of other protective services uh, is needed. But it's a very sensitive issue and it's one that I think you should keep at the back of your mind. Uh, hearing is one of the most uh, sensory loss, one of the most common uh, sensory loss as we get older. Uh, the type of hearing that uh, hearing loss that occurs in older adults is uh, high frequency uh, sensorial hearing hearing loss, which means that often you are having difficulty in understanding people when there is additional sound in the background. For example, if you are in the stadium, in the church, uh, somebody may be speaking to you, sitting next to you, you may not be able to hear them just because there is additional uh, sound uh, in the background. When that is happening, uh, it's most appropriate to get evaluation uh, because it can further complicate uh, imagine memory issues because, because the brain needs adequate and continuous uh, stimuli in order to uh, remain optimal. Uh, we also uh, uh, must address optical medical management of existing medical conditions. I alluded to that at the beginning. Uh, hypertension, diabetes, uh, high cholesterol, COPD, asthma, uh, et cetera, all must be uh, optimally managed, including congestive heart failure, and et cetera. 
Um, if you don't already have an advanced directives, it's probably a good idea to put one in place uh, so that um, the state doesn't become the beneficiary of your hard-earned um, um, income over uh, several years. Yeah. And also require somebody to make uh, important medical decisions uh, on your behalf when uh, it becomes impossible for you to make those decisions. And also you can put things in place as to how you will like um, um, your affairs to be managed uh, when you become incapable of doing such, as well as um, resuscitation and do not resuscitation and so on and so forth. So what does a geriatrician do in hospitalized patients? Um, the medical care for the medical care of a hospitalized patient is not remarkably different. But what is different again is the sensitivity of the geriatrician to certain medical issues. Uh, assessing and managing multiple complex comorbid uh, conditions, which can be perplexing to uh, people, to individuals who may not be familiar with um, uh, same multiple complex medical circumstances in, in older adults and prioritizing on how to disentangle and address these medical conditions. Uh, of note is acute confusion and delirium uh, that is most important, of, of utmost important to discern uh, uh, acute confusional state and delirium uh, because time can be very critically important here. Uh, on, identify the underlying etiology and make sure that it's properly treated. This is one of the most common reasons why a geriatric consult is requested uh, for hospitalized patients. Uh, dementia evaluation is another area that um, we do see quite a bit and uh, request for consult. Uh, the, Fundamental question most often is, is it delirium or dementia? Uh, most geriatricians are quite astute in uh, making this uh, differentiation. Uh, the sunny cause of multiple hospitalizations, um, it's not uncommon uh, to see a lot of older adults going in and out of the hospital. Um, on occasions, the reason for this could be as simple as nobody has ever assessed the memory of that senior. You can imagine a senior taking five, six different medications over the course of any given day, and nobody has really bothered to assess their cognitive capacity to discern whether or not they're actually able to remember to take these medications at the appropriate time and, and the, with, in the appropriate dose. They come to the hospital, um, the medication is readjusted again, thinking that, oh, it's probably the regimen that is not appropriate, not realizing that this person may actually not be taking the medication as prescribed, either taking too little or taking too much of the same medication. Uh, we facilitate diagnosis of common but less recognized diseases or problems. I uh, described to you my experience uh, with a case of pulmonary embolism earlier on. Uh, this was not the exception, but uh, this type of thing was is really quite common uh, in hospitalized elderly patients. Uh, preventing fluid overload. 
there are very nuanced uh, changes that occur with the cardiovascular system as we age. Um, the heart is not able to pump as hard as it used to. Uh, there is decreased maximum heart rate, that is the rate at which the heart will respond uh, to changes in hemodynamics is compromised. Uh, we also have loss of sensitivity of the baroreceptor. The baroreceptor is kind of like a gauge in the neck that senses the amount of blood that is going to the brain, uh, which becomes delayed as, as we get older. All this can culminate in the, into the inability of an older patient to appropriately uh, respond uh, to fluid uh, when he or she is being given IV fluid in the hospital setting. And before you know it, they can become quick, very quickly, become fluid overloaded, and they start tosspacing. When we say tosspacing, it means the fluid is seeping out of the intravascular system and getting to the extravascular space. And once that begins to happen very quickly, um, they go into fulminant congestive heart failure, uh, kidney failure may set in, and all kinds of things uh, can happen. Uh, we also focus on preventing and managing screen breakdown to make sure the appropriate care is taken, uh, to make sure that somebody uh, who came to the hospital with intact skin does not leave the hospital with a broken skin, which can be very, very challenging to hear. Preventing functional loss. In the early days, uh, most clinicians in the hospital not, I'm not necessarily talking about any particular hospital. No. Most clinicians in the hospital will intuitively write uh, uh, bed rest once they see somebody admitted to the hospital regardless of age. This is a no-no in old adults. We should get them moving to the extent possible that making sure that uh, we mitigate the risk of falls uh, to the extent possible, uh, but get physical therapy involved on time uh, so that they don't undergo rapid functional decline. We know for a fact that majority, a disproportionately high percent of older adults who are admitted to the hospital, who were marginally functional before admission may be admitted for pneumonia. By the time they leave the hospital, they cannot walk again. Uh, this is highly undesirable. And one of the ways to prevent this from happening is getting them moving as quickly as possible and getting the rehabilitation uh, team involved. Uh, medication debridement and polypharmacy. Uh, again, as I alluded to in my opening remarks, is one area where we can make very, very significant uh, uh, impact on the well-being of seniors. I typically encourage uh, my residents that even if they don't know, it's an opportunity to look it up. Uh, anytime they see a medication that they are not familiar with, it's most appropriate that they go and look up the side effects. And the higher the number of medications uh, you take, the more likely uh, there are going to be adverse uh, consequences uh, because of uh, medication drug-drug interaction. We want to avoid to the extent possible uh, treating the side effects of one medication with another medication, uh, which can be very, very common in older adults. Uh, I give an example of, um, I mean, it's been 
in the literature that um, uh, African-Americans respond better to, uh, to calcium channel blockers. Uh, why that has not been my uh, anecdotal experience in my practice, I stay away from calcium channel blocker for this specific reason. In that calcium channel blockers uh, uh, cause uh, peripheral edema, it causes constipation, which means that for the peripheral edema, your doctor is going to additionally put you on diuretics. And if that diuretics is doing what it's supposed to do, you're going to lose potassium, which means your doctor is going to add potassium supplement. And then because of constipation, it's going to give you lactulose or ducolax on before or senna before you know it. You are on six medications just because you are taking one blood pressure medication. Uh, for geriatricians, these are highly undesirable uh, uh, consequences. And therefore, uh, we would prefer to use a medication that will not come with those type of side effects so that we don't escalate the number of medications uh, that are necessary. We don't ever want to have somebody who should be on a single medication for blood pressure taking five, six different medications just because they are taking one blood pressure medication. We also work very hard at expediting discharge uh, because any hospital, hospitals are not benign environments uh, because of um, the potential for iatrogenic hospital acquired um, uh, uh, issues. Um, maybe falls, maybe skin breakdown, maybe uh, resistant uh, box that are resistant to antibiotics, uh, conventional antibiotics, and so on and so forth, and the conditioning also. So for this reason, uh, reasons, we try to expedite, expedite discharge to the extent possible. We also try to provide guidance on discharge options uh, depending on the on the physical activity or functional capacity of that individual. Uh, contextualizing that with resources that may be available to that person in the home environment. Obviously, somebody who lives with a spouse or with a child, with their own child, uh, who have, with people to provide care at home, will rather be left at home for a much longer period of time. Whereas somebody with the same level of functional limitation can end up in the nursing home if there is no committed caregiver uh, to provide care in the home environment. The goal is always to keep our seniors in their home environment uh, to the extent possible. But we have to balance this with um, what kind of resources are available in the home environment, uh, financial and human resources, uh, safety issues, as well as functional limitations. We also try very hard uh, to reduce uh, rehospitalization by looking at the etiology of uh, frequent uh, hospital admission. So um, if I should leave you with a few uh, 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 notes and advice, uh, what, what should that be? Um, Social engagement is critically, critically important. In fact, in a centenarian study by, the, uh, by some of my colleagues from Briga, they actually show that um, one of the most important 
predictor of longevity is social engagement and coping mechanism because your ability, the richness of your network actually enhances your coping mechanism and make life stressors a little bit easier to, to, um, to, to carry and to, to, to withhold. Um, so being socially engaged is very, very critically important, which is one of the things you're doing here, kind of getting together with friends. Uh, if you are a churchgoer, it's most important. Um, uh, one of my mentors and I published a paper some way back uh, showing that those who go to church with some regularity actually um, do have less uh, risk of dying from cardiovascular causes. Uh, obviously, uh, one thing we noted in that analysis was that the uh, likelihood of having high levels of inflammatory cytokines uh, is much lower than that of those who generally do not go to church uh, because it's a type of moping uh, coping mechanism. Uh, if you think it's because of spirituality, I will not argue with you, but that was in the context of the paper. Uh, but I want to emphasize that uh, the richness of your social network is critically important to your longevity, your ability to live a healthy um, and, and uh, prolonged life. Physical fitness is critically important, um, whether it is walking that you are able to do aerobic exercise or resistant exercise, no amount of exercise is too little. Any exercise you can do uh, is uh, most appropriate. Even if you cannot walk, you still can exercise uh, while sitting on chair. Uh, you can get those vacuum weights, attach them to your ankles and to your wrists and kind of move them to the extent possible. Uh, the combination of uh, social engagement and physical fitness is perhaps the most important medicine to deter the aging process. Uh, brain aerobics is, uh, can be very helpful. Uh, learning new skills like playing piano, dancing, um, things that you have not been doing um, earlier on, maybe even traveling. Uh, crossword puzzle uh, can be very, very important in maintaining uh, active neurons in the brain. Uh, medications, uh, always take all your medications to your doctor on every visit, not some particular visit, every visit. And all the medications that you're taking, whether over-the-counter medication, whether prescribed by cardiologist, uh, diabetology, any medication that you put into your mouth, you must take everything to your doctor uh, when you go to see them so that they can properly see what is happening and see what is interacting with what, uh, what is being used to treat the side effects of other medications so that your doctor can properly uh, discern the need for medication debridement and whether or not uh, some medications should be discontinued and um, in the, at the most appropriate rate. Uh, don't accept constipation as normal. Uh, constipation can cause acute confusional states in order that dot. It can cause fogginess. Uh, even I encourage my kids when they are preparing for an exam to clean out their bowel because it can be very, very uh, damning to the brain. And 
most importantly for older adults, um, constipation can cause uh, acute confusional state because what happens is that there is a continued breakdown of protein that produces ammonia and that ammonia crosses the blood-brain barrier and uh, causes um, havoc to the brain. Also, because it's stretching the gut epithelium, it's allowing inflammatory cytokines to go across the gut um, membrane and then get access to the brain and cause all kinds of unwanted uh, problems. Uh, we should destigmatize depression to enable diagnosis and treatment. Uh, in 2023, nobody should be uh, suffering from depression in silence because it's easily treatable. It's not different from hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol problems, and therefore uh, you should not allow depression to be the beginning of the end because the consequences of not getting treated can be quite immense. Uh, get the appropriate vaccines, uh, pneumonia, shingles, flu, COVID. Uh, again, uh, these are available to you and you should avail yourself of those opportunities. Uh, get other medical concerns under control, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, COPD, asthma, heart failure, all are manageable and therefore uh, should be optimally managed and other periodic healthcare screening. Uh, I know I wasn't going to talk about uh, research, but I want to leave you with these two slides. It looks complicated, but it's really not. All I just want to show you here is color. Look at the color on the left side and look at the stretch group on the right side. And there's a white line separating uh, each of them. On this side, you will see before exercise, after exercise. There is no discernible difference here. Here is the aerobic exercise. This is before exercise. This is after exercise. It's like day and night. I show you this to say that exercise is very, very powerful. For many, many decades, we kind of think of exercise as a pie in the sky where it's good, do it because it's good. Now we know that exercise is actually changing how your genes function. It affects, it interacts with the function of your gene to enhance well-being. So exercise is critically, critically important. Again, this is uh, what we, got uh, we call global gene array. This is uh, a gene uh, uh, type of study. This is FDG pet of the brain, the special image of the brain, looking at before and after exercise. The brighter red color signifies, uh, indicates how your brain is able to use glucose because glucose uh, is, the, uh, is the gasoline for human physiology, is the energy source for human physiology. You can see that the ability of the brain after exercise to utilize glucose is much, much enhanced compared with those who are performing stretch exercise. Stretch exercise is not bad, uh, it does something good, but not to the extent that we see in those who perform uh, aerobic exercise. Uh, I will stop there and, and thank you for your attention. I think we may have a few minutes uh, for questions here. Thank you. What, what a brilliant uh, presentation. It covers everything from uh, 
the beginning to the end. One question that I would raise uh, is, a, is a tricky question for you to answer, but it's a question that uh, should be answered anyway. And that is, at what age does one need to go to a geriatrician? Because you talked about so many things. You talked about, uh, but the question is, when, at what age should you want to have a geriatrician uh, in addition to whoever else you have? Yeah, uh, Dr. Conrad, I think one of the tenets you've taught us is that prevention is better than cure. And, and based on that tenant, um, it's most appropriate that um, we consider seeing a geriatrician once we turn 65. Uh, the age 65 is actually arbitrary. It came out of social security. Uh, that is the age that um, we frequently use to discern uh, those individuals should see geriatricians compared with the general population. In the same vein, I should also add that that's kind of a, a, a moving shadow in a way because uh, people are living a uh, heavier life and to, um, to much later in life. Uh, so depending upon individual uh, medical issues, uh, some people, at 65, are still looking like they are in their 50s. And if everything is working okay, well, maybe you can continue seeing your primary care doctor. But the earlier you see a geriatrician, uh, the better it is, so that he or she can prevent things that are preventable from happening and not wait on the things that have gotten complicated and someone is admitted to the hospital with 10 different medical problems and completely obtained uh, before the geriatrician. That is, I mean, that's okay, but that's not a scenario that we like to see play out often. We would prefer that we see uh, uh, the individual well before they begin to develop uh, this age-related uh, disease uh, problems. Great answer. Uh, John Buchanan, your hands up. <laughs> Yes, uh, thank you so much, Doc. I, I took so many notes, I don't even know where to start with my questions. <laughs> uh, one thing you mentioned about falls, one of my very best friends in life, uh, Lloyd Pinchback, he was a, a musician. He left a, a gig one night, went home and fell in the, in the shower and died from that fall. So that, um, that, information about falls is very, very, very important. Um, I, I had a question about physiology of, of, you know, the shape of your body as you get older. Uh, I have a, a fat tummy. <laughs> and is that typical of aging? Uh, what might be the solution for having a fat tummy? Uh, thanks for that uh, question. Um, I, I don't know if I have a solution per se, uh, but let me begin by saying, why is a fat tummy, why does fat, fat tummy occur as we get older? As we get older, there is redistribution of fat from the periphery to the central region, which is the abdomen. 
If you notice, if you look at the skin of older adults, uh, often they've lost some amount of subcutaneous fat. But compensatory to that is the reaccumulation of that fat in the central region. Uh, and because uh, central adiposity uh, fat in the abdomen is pro-inflammatory, it enhances, it increases the level of inflammation. It's more likely to cause problems that are associated with inflammation, which is almost all the problems, almost all the health problems that we have as humans, from diabetes to hypertension, to cancer, to memory disorder, uh, to asthma. Inflammation is at the core of each and every one of those uh, medical predicaments. Uh, what can you do to lower the level? Uh, I think exercise and diet in combination, in reasonable combination, are the two things that you have available to you uh, to use and to see uh, how you can bring down the level of inflammation. Even if the central adiposity does not necessarily seem to be disappearing, but at least enhancement of physical fitness, we mitigate to some extent uh, the consequences of those uh, high levels of inflammatory cytokines that are associated with central adiposity. The other thing that I really want to emphasize is that over time, a lot of stuff accumulates in the stomach, in the gut, that are not just fat. Um, if you do an abdominal x-ray in most older adults, you will see that most of them are backed up and they don't even know they are backed up. So one other thing you can do is to make sure that you have uh, regular bowel movement, uh, eating a lot of roughage. Uh, if that is not doing it, exercise. If that is not working enough, then it may be desirable uh, that you take some laxative. Uh, every you have to throw everything uh, that you have at it. Exercise, diet, and making sure that your bowel moves as uh, often as necessary. Now, I qualify routine regular bowel movement because it's different for every individual. Some people move their bowel on daily basis, some move their bowels on every other day, and so on and so forth. But the key is making sure that um, you have regular bowel movement. Thank you so much. I, I did have one more question though. Um, uh, really is uh, an observation. When uh, my mom was developing Alzheimer's and she had to take, we had to take the car keys away and all that. Uh, she definitely changed at that point. But also we found out that she was taking her medications out of the containers that they came in and we couldn't even tell which medication was which so she was not taking her medication properly at, at, at that point and that that was like a shock you know to to see that someone who was brilliant you know super high iq all of a sudden could not deal with organization and you know separation of of, of you know taking care of herself so uh, that, that that was very impactful for me to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you for those observations. Um, it, it's one area that I think we can all do a better job by being quite vigilant because 
delay in identifying uh, memory loss can be very, very costly. Um, it could be as costly as somebody uh, getting admitted to the hospital for confusion and never coming back from the hospital just because we have not discerned the fact that memory loss was um, was at play, uh, making uh, the person, uh, culminating to the person uh, not having the ability to comply with their medication regimen, either taking too little or taking too much of it or not even taking it at all. Yeah. Dr. Eta. Hello, yes. Uh, thank you very much for a well-presented uh, presentation. Thank you. I have one question <clears throat> uh, with regards, it's just like it's, just like it's a follow-up of uh, Dr. Kalenda's uh, question. Um, the onset of uh, dementia uh, varies with age. But amongst, you know, we see, you know, some um, people of uh, younger age, maybe in their 40s, becoming dermatic. dermatic. Uh, in Africa, we consider them as uh, being mad people. You know, they forget where they are. They, you know, perambulate on the streets naked. And we classify them as being uh as having lost their mind they don't know what they're doing so how do we uh classify how do we classify them with the elder people over 65 that are truly you know have loss of memory how do we you know differentiate these people how do you as uh, a geriatrician differentiate these people from people who are truly uh, suffering from memory memory loss. Uh, uh, thank you for that very uh, interesting question. Uh, there are three or four legs to that question. One is, first of all, making sure that that individual does not have a psychiatric disorder, like a schizoaffective disorder. So once we exclude psychiatric as schizoaffective disorder, the next level is whether or not that person has dementia. Now, there are different types of dementia. For Alzheimer's type of dementia, there are two types. There is early onset, there is late onset. The late onset is typically what we see in older adults, but the early onset Alzheimer's uh, dementia tends to begin at a relatively early age, in the 40s and 50s. Okay. Uh, this is most common in some South American countries, and typically, uh, they are very, very rapidly progressive. Mm. The underlying pathology of amyloid is essentially the same. But that type of early onset Alzheimer's dementia is due to a specific genetic mutation. Okay. So for those who carry that mutation, it is certain that they are going to develop Alzheimer's dementia. And develop it at a much earlier age, in their 40s, mostly in their 40s, and at the worst in their early 50s. But typically, it begins in the early 40s uh, to early 50s. Uh, for late onset dementia, it typically will begin 
um, maybe between around 70, uh, maybe starting 65, 70, 75, 80. By the time people get to 80, uh, things kind of slow down a little bit. Um, but one of the most fundamental ways to really discern them, uh, whether it is early onset or late onset, is to do genetic testing. Uh, there is a specific genetic mutation that causes early onset. Uh, whereas for late onset, uh, there is a gene called a polypoprotein E gene uh, that is more or less a predisposing factor, not a factor like the mutation that will definitely cause the disease. Not everybody with the uh, apolipoprotein E gene will develop Alzheimer's dementia, but mm -hmm. everybody with a genetic mutation for the early onset will develop uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease. There is also another component, which is the last component, which is a frontotemporal dementia. Frontotemporal dementia tends to start early compared to late onset Alzheimer's disease. Uh, if you do an MRI scan of the brain of those with frontotemporal dementia, you will see wasting loss of volume in the frontotemporal regions uh, of the brain. Uh, these individuals tend to begin with loss of executive function uh, they tend to have uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms, uh, behavioral issues, even before the memory, um, pronounced memory issues become um, um, a major concern. So those are the four, the four different categories uh, we uh, use to explain uh, my response to your question, which is exclude uh, Frank's schizoaffective disorder, then decide whether or not those individuals have early onset Alzheimer's disease, which typically begins in early 40s to early 50s. They have specific genetic mutation. Okay. And then those with frontotemporal dementia typically develop memory loss around the age of late 50s to early 60s. Uh, typically, they begin with um, uh, loss of executive function and neuropsychiatric problem, and then memory uh, kind of set, memory loss kind of sets in. And then the frank, the Alzheimer's disease that we are familiar with is the one that occurs in people above the age of 65, uh, which is slowly progressive over time. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Blake? Yes, I have a question. Did you mention something about the effect of calcium on the body and, you know, and so forth? When you uh, take calcium? Uh, no, calcium is is good um, mm -hmm. uh, for brain for brain. I mean, it's, uh, for bone health. Uh, the other thing that we add along those lines is uh, vitamin D three, uh, which is which we know is a hormone. Usually, you know, we call it vitamin. It's almost like a hormone, and it has anti-inflammatory property. Uh, mm -hmm. There has been some studies suggesting that vitamin D three could be beneficial. Uh, to preventing memory loss and to reducing the level of inflammation in general in the whole body. Uh, but calcium is good for bone health and vitamin D3 is a very good adjunct and uh, can be can have greater ramifications for well-being even beyond uh, that of calcium, just calcium. Thank you. 
Okay, I'm gonna spell this medication. It, my heart, it's for the heart. I think it was supposed to prevent heart problems later in the line. A-T-O-V-A-S-T-A-I-N. A-T-O-V-A-S-T. Yes, and it says calcium, that's why it's that. But I already take vitamin D, but he said down the line, it can protect the heart so you won't have heart issues. And when I heard you say that, um, a lot of times when we take preventive medicine, it could you know, affect you later. Have Can you spell it one more time? Is it A-T-O-R? V-A-S-T. Oh, October starting? Okay, October starting. Well, atovastatin is a cholesterol-lowering medication, and um, anything that will help you lower cholesterol potentially uh, will minimize or reduce your risk of developing uh, plaques in your vessels. And I should say, though, that uh, there are some unconfirmed studies uh, suggesting that atovastatin can actually cause memory loss. Uh, but... Um, uh, Follow-up studies have not confirmed that, uh, but anecdotal evidence and initial studies suggest that uh, atovastatin may cause memory loss. Okay, uh, so my advice uh, is to try to the extent possible to control your uh, cholesterol with diet and exercise, mm -hmm. and um, hopefully um, you won't have to take atovastatin. But if your doctor prescribes at starting to you, it's imperative that you take it because I'm believing that your doctor has done due diligence um, looking at your overall uh, health issue and well-being and concluded that atovastatin will be beneficial to you. Now, he told me to prevent heart issues down the line. So that's why I asked that. Yeah, he, he, he probably noted that your cholesterol was high and wanted mm -hmm. to bring down the cholesterol to some extent. Uh, okay. But one thing we forget is that um, everybody thinks cholesterol, every cholesterol is bad. Uh, there are good cholesterols and there are bad cholesterol. Even though the cholesterol that we say is bad, our body cannot survive without certain level of cholesterol because cholesterol has a very, very important function in human physiology. But like anything else, too little cholesterol is very, very bad. Uh, in fact, those in the MICU setting who have very low cholesterol, they are less likely to survive the insult that got them to MICU. Also, conversely, uh, high cholesterol will cause plaques in your vessels and can cause stroke and cause a heart attack. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I, had one, I had one other question. Uh, I know time is running out, but uh, uh, if you find somebody who has early signs of dementia, do we know that medications will delay the onset of the dementia? Uh, and if so, what kind of uh, therapy is essential? Uh, thank you for that question, uh, Dr. Kalender. Um, I will say that we yet do not have the magic bullet uh, to prevent, I mean, to optimally treat Alzheimer's dementia, which is the most common type of dementia. 
Uh, but I think it's imperative that if someone has memory loss that we try to discern what type of memory loss they have. Uh, because there are certain medications that will cause confusion and memory loss. Uh, there are medications that, um, that can affect negatively the normal function of the brain. And also we have to be sure that there are no other medical conditions that is causing the person to appear to have memory loss. For example, depression. Uh, depression will make somebody lose the ability to concentrate. So if you are presenting an information to somebody who's not concentrating, that person is not going to be able to register the information. And if they don't register the information, they can't they can't represent, uh, record the information that they did not register, uh, which is why it's most important that we rule out depression. There is also a condition called normal pressure adocephalus, uh, which is fluid build up in the brain that will cause uh, memory loss, ataxic gait, and bladder issues. Again, if we uh, correctly make that diagnosis, um, there are established treatment protocols for that particular condition. For Alzheimer's disease in particular, um, we are now really at the uh, interface of actually being able to remove the protein that causes the disease from the brain and prevent those individuals from developing Alzheimer's disease. As I alluded to earlier on, that protein begins to accumulate about 20 years before the appearance of memory uh, loss. And therefore, if we do a PET scan and find out that an individual has amyloid in the brain, there is a medication now that is approved by the FDA called lecanemab that can remove that protein from the brain uh, and therefore uh, with the hope of preventing that individual from progressing to memory loss. The initial study showed that yes, lecanemab can remove amyloid from the brain, and that remover is also associated with uh, slowness, um, with attenuation of the decline in memory function. Uh, there are additional studies ongoing, some of which we are participating in, to really try to identify individuals who yet do not have any evidence of memory loss, but who have that protein in the brain. With the hope that if we remove the protein from the brain, can we ultimately prevent that person from ever having memory loss of the Alzheimer's type? Uh, so to your question, Dr. Kalenda, if there is somebody who has a memory loss, uh, I'm delighted to see that person and then discern what type of memory loss they have, that person has, and then decide whether that person is a candidate uh, for lecanemab. Unfortunately, uh, Medicare and Medicaid is still not paying absence on patients for PESCAN. Uh, they're having issues with getting uh, coverage uh, for the PESCAN because we need to ensure, we need to know for sure that an individual has that protein in the brain before we can give them lecanema. Um, but we are also getting close to having a blood test. In fact, there is a blood test that but it's just experimental at this point. Uh, a blood test that has been proven to actually parallel 
um, the, the findings in uh, pest scan of the brain are to discerning the level of amyloid that correlates uh, to significant amyloid load in the brain, and therefore uh, amyloid-related memory loss of the Alzheimer's type. Elizabeth Deutsch, uh, you had a question? Yes, yes. Thank you, Dr. Callender. Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, Dr. Thomas, thank you so much. Uh, an appreciation and thank you for an excellent and empowering uh, presentation. It is really appreciated because we know it's for our longevity and wellness. My quick question is, what other medication other than, than a pill that can be taken for Alzheimer's? Um, so if I had your question correctly, uh, you wanted to know if there are other medications besides donapesi? No, um, I have a uh, relative that refused to take any type of pills. Okay, so she won't take tablets, pills or anything but she's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So I wanna know what other method of medication can be given to her to help with the decline of, of support of her Alzheimer's diagnosis? Um, at this point in time, the only medication, additional medication, which is new that has been approved by the FDA is the lecanemab, which is an IV infusion. infusion. Um, at our center, we are just at the initial stage of trying to start an infusion center uh, so that we can administer uh, the lecanemab uh, infusion uh, to persons uh, with dementia. It's approved for persons with uh, mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia, not so much with persons with severe Alzheimer's disease. Um, my cognitive impairment means individuals who have memory loss, but who have not met the criteria uh, for Alzheimer's disease, uh, but they have memory loss that is reminiscent of Alzheimer's disease and on the path to developing actual dementia, as well as those who have actually developed uh, Alzheimer's dementia, but are at the early stage of the disease. Uh, that medication uh, is by infusion, it's called lecanemab. We are also now testing that medication in people who have amyloid in the brain, but who don't yet have any memory loss. Thank you very much. Dr. Atchel, I guess it would be the last question. You're on mute. We can't hear you. We cannot hear you. We cannot hear you, Dr. Atto. Dr. Atto, you, you're mute. You're mute. Unmute. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Now. Okay. Yes. The accumulation of uh, amyloid proteins in the brain. I'm a little uh, confused about it. <clears throat> uh, is it as a result of um, 
a genetic problem in the brain to metabolize these proteins? Or, and does it progress with time, the accumulation of uh, this protein? Is it genetic? Because some people live up to 100 and still retain their memory uh, acuity. Um, that's a very uh, uh, intriguing question. Um, we yet do not know exactly what causes um, the process of abnormal cleavage of the amyloid to begin. But what we do know is that the abnormal cleavage of the amyloid uh, causes certain forms of the amyloid that has the ability to aggregate. And as they aggregate, uh, they cause um, plaques and then neurofibrillary tangles, uh, which are further accompanied by another protein called tau. Mm -hmm. um, the accumulation begins about uh, 15 to 20 years before somebody actually developed memory loss. In people with early onset dementia, it's because of a specific uh, mutation in a specific gene. Okay. But for people with late onset dementia, uh, we have not observed that type of mutation. But what we do know is that there is another gene that predisposes them to uh, having abnormal folding of the protein. But that second gene is more or less what we call a non-deterministic genetic risk factor. It's a risk factor. It's not like a mutation in the early onset that once you have that mutation, you're going to develop the disease. It's different for the late onset. The late onset gene that we have recognized so far are merely risk factors. They merely increase the risk of that person, of any given person uh, developing the disease. Thank uh, you. Different aggregates of copies of the gene that culminates into different levels of risk. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Sir. Thank you very much for excellent job. Once again, uh, you've uh, uh, exceeded even our great expectations of you. And we appreciate it very much. And uh, uh, we look forward to having you again to educate us and help us uh, grow older with grace. Yeah.